1807, the United States Congress passed a law that prohibited the importation of any new slaves into the country, thus officially ending America's participation in the international slave trade. It was a small step, you might say. After all, while slaves could no longer be imported into the United States, that didn't put an end to the domestic slave trade. Still, even if it didn't put an actual end to slavery, it was a significant moment, and it was a clear statement against the practice of buying and selling human persons. And for some African Americans, at least, it was an occasion to celebrate and give thanks. On January 1st, 1808, the day that the new law went into effect, Absalom Jones, who was the first African-American priest in the Episcopal Church, he preached a sermon in his Philadelphia congregation entitled, quite simply, A Thanksgiving Sermon, in which he, he called his people to give thanks to God for what had taken place. Let us, he said, carry grateful hearts with us to our places of abode and to our daily occupations, and let praise and thanksgivings daily ascend to the throne of grace in our families and in our closets for what God has done for our African brethren. Of course, it makes sense that Jones and his congregants would give thanks for a law prohibiting the importation of any more slaves, but why should they give thanks to God? If you're going to give thanks to someone, shouldn't you thank the politicians who helped to write and pass the legislation? Or maybe the abolitionists who worked so hard writing tracts and making speeches and lobbying for the cause? You could take offense at Absalom Jones's assumption that God is the one who ought to be thanked, rather than the people who were responsible for instituting and implementing this new law. But Jones's instinct, as he preached, was a very biblical one. What he recognized, and what he wanted his congregants to recognize, was that this historical moment was no mere coincidence, nor was it simply the result of all the work that abolitionists had done. Behind this occasion of blessing was the hand of a good and generous God. He, Jones tells his listeners, he is the one who disposed the hearts of political leaders to pass the law. He is the one who provided the, the, the numerous and the passionate proponents of abolition. Even this comely building, Jones says, referencing the, the church building in which his congregation worshiped, this comely building, erected chiefly by the generosity of our friends, is a monument of God's goodness to us and calls for our gratitude with all the other blessings that have been mentioned. And maybe none of this sounds very surprising to you. Maybe you think, well, of course, a preacher would tell his people to give thanks to God. But I think we shouldn't pass too quickly over what Jones says in that sermon. Because I think that what he's doing is something that, even if we agree with it, we often don't do very well. It's very easy to take for granted the goods of our life, or to think of them simply as 
the product of our own hard work. It's much harder to see the invisible hand of God behind it all. And that's what Jones was trying to help his congregation do. That's also exactly what the general thanksgiving is training us to do every time we give thanks to God, not only for our creation, but also for our preservation and all the blessings of this life. Whether or not we recognize the hand of God behind the the many goods we enjoy, it's a truth that is affirmed all throughout the Bible. Sometimes it's, it's stated very explicitly. Take, for instance, what the Apostle James has to say on the matter. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. But it's one thing to affirm God as the source of all the good things we enjoy. It's another thing to actually recognize it on a daily basis and give thanks. And if the Bible teaches us anything about human behavior, it's that we have an uncanny ability to, at the one time, affirm our belief in God's providential care, in theory, and then forget it in practice. Moses knew this very well, which is why in his final sermon to the people of Israel, right before they cross over the Jordan River into the land of promise, Moses reminds them, he reminds them of all the many ways God had provided for them since they left Egypt. He reminds them how the Lord had fed them on a daily basis in the wilderness, how he had provided clothing and sandals that didn't wear out in all the many years they spent wandering around, how he gave them victory over their enemies. And then, and then Moses issues them a warning. Take care, he says, lest you forget the Lord your God, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who fed you in the wilderness. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. What Moses is warning the people against is the the common tendency, even amongst God's own people, the tendency to forget that God is the source of the preservation and blessings in our life. And to begin to think that, you know, whatever success we or our families enjoy, that it's really due to our own planning and our own efforts rather than the gracious hand of God. That sort of forgetfulness was a big problem for the people of Israel. And it continues to be a problem today. In 2007, an economist named Robert Frank, who was teaching at Cornell University, he had a heart attack while playing tennis with a friend. And his friend immediately called 911, of course. But, but the tennis courts where they were, they were a good five miles from where ambulances are typically dispatched. And they wouldn't have been able to make it in time. But as it just so happens, two ambulances had already been sent to a car accident right next to where the tennis courts were. 
And since there wasn't much injury at the accident, one of those was able to be immediately redirected to Robert Frank. And because of that, they arrived almost immediately after his friend dialed 911. The EMTs used a defibrillator on him and rushed him to the hospital. And doctors later told Frank that 90% at least of cases like his tended to end in death. And those who do survive almost invariably suffer some kind of long-term consequence. But Robert Frank didn't die, and in fact, he fully recovered from his heart attack. And that led him to an important realization. If that ambulance hadn't happened to have been nearby, he later wrote, I'd be dead. I'm a lucky man. After that experience, he became increasingly interested in the role that luck plays in personal success. How much, he asked, should we credit our individual success to unearned and unplanned benefits or, or to fortuitous circumstances? So with a team of colleagues, he spent years researching this question. And you know what he found? First, he found that luck does indeed play a massive role in personal success. And second, he found that most people, especially people who are particularly successful, tend to overlook the role of luck in their lives and tend to credit whatever goodness or success they enjoy, they credit it to their own hard work. Of course, as Christians, we recognize that what Robert Frank calls luck is in fact the providence of God. But the conclusions that he draws from his research show that what Moses warned the Israelites about more than 3,000 years ago, it continues to be a problem today. We still forget that God is the source of our preservation and all the blessings of this life. And we still find ways to credit ourselves. But it doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to forget the kindness of God or be blind to how he is the one responsible for all the blessings we enjoy. Now, to illustrate what I'd mean, I'd like to talk briefly about two examples of men who live their lives with an acute awareness of the presence and providence of God. The first of those men is Joseph whose story is told in the final 12 chapters of the book of Genesis. I won't go over the details of Joseph's story. I'm sure you're already familiar with it. From his, his early days as the, the favored son in his father's household, to the suffering he endured at the betrayal of his brothers and his time as a slave and prisoner in Egypt. You'll remember how his life completely turned around after that. And his, his meteoric rise from being an imprisoned slave to, bring, to being the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. It's, it's hard to think of a more dramatic rags to riches story than that of Joseph's in Egypt. Now, there's no need to review the details of his story, but I do wanna take a moment and think about how he himself interpreted it. If Robert Frank is right, then you might expect Joseph to credit his success 
to his own ingenuity while in prison or, or, or to his, his hard work and his dependability as a counselor to the Pharaoh. Or, or Joseph could have thought that his later success was just some kind of reward or payback for all the suffering he had to endure earlier in life. He could have explained his success in any number of ways, but he doesn't. What does he tell his brothers when he finally reveals to them who he is? Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. It would have been only too easy for Joseph to look back on his life with bitterness at what he had to go through or or with pride at what he accomplished. But he doesn't do either of those things. Instead, when he looks back on his life, he does so with gratitude. Because what he sees in all the twists and turns is the presence of the invisible hand of God, preserving him and blessing him so that he himself might be a blessing to others. As he says to his brothers after their father's death, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph is very aware of the providence of God at work in his life. And he recognizes the the goodness of that providence, even in the darkest and most painful moments he endured. And I've always been struck by Joseph's example. But maybe even more than Joseph, I'm struck by the example of St. Augustine. Augustine's story, it's not as well known as Joseph's, but you may already be familiar with it born into a a kind of middle-class Roman family in North Africa in the fourth century, Augustine spent years of his life on a restless quest for happiness. And after decades of trying and, and failing to find happiness through romance, through friendships, through career success, he finally has something of a breakdown and converts to Christianity. And then in his mid-40s, He spends several years thinking back through his life and writing an account, kind of a memoir of everything he'd done and experienced. And what Augustine wrote in that memoir became very famous, and there's a lot to say about it, but what I find particularly striking about it, at least for our purposes in this study, is just how much Augustine recognizes the grace of God in the countless details he remembers. In every single aspect of his life, it seems, he looks back and he finds evidence of the goodness of God. From the nourishment he received as an infant to the career opportunities he experienced as a young adult. From the love of his mother to the instruction of his teachers to the friendships he develops later in life from random conversations, unexpected encounters with with, with street beggars that leave an impression on him. As he looks back, what he sees are not an endless series of personal successes and personal failures 
or just chance happenings. What he sees is the ever-present hand of God at work, blessing him with unearned gifts, protecting him from unrecognized dangers, and constantly guiding him to goods that, that he wasn't even aware he wanted or needed. Even his moments of failure or disappointment or grief, when Augustine looks back on them, what he recognizes is what he comes to call, I like this phrase, what he comes to call the hidden providence of God, constantly at work to preserve and bless him. At one point, he recalls a conversation that he had with this man named Faustus. And he'd expected Faustus in this conversation. He'd expected him to be able to give him guidance and answer some of the questions he had. But in the end, Augustine came away very disappointed. And later, as he looked back, he realized the hand of God even in that disappointing conversation because that was what inspired him to abandon the kind of cultish sect that he'd gotten involved in at the time. Thus, it came about, he says, that this Faustus, who was a death trap for many, unwittingly began to spring the trap in which I was caught. For thanks to your hidden providence, O God, your hands did not let go of my soul. That sounds very similar to what Joseph said to his brothers. Faustus may have intended to do Augustine harm, but God in his providence used even this conversation to preserve and bless Augustine's life. And I think there's a lot we can learn from the examples of Joseph and Augustine. Because the truth is that just as Moses warned, just as Robert Frank observed in his research, we do have a remarkable ability to either forget or ignore the fact that God is the source, not only of our creation, but of our preservation and every blessing we enjoy. We don't see the hidden providence of God because we fail to look for it. Our lives our lives are filled with endless gifts from God, but more often than not, we don't recognize them for what they are. In his classic book, The Imitation of Christ, Thomas Akempis includes this prayer. Grant me to remember with great reverence and due regard your benefits, both those granted to all men and those especially given to me, so that I may worthily offer you my thanks. This, I think, is a particularly fitting prayer for us as we seek to, to, to recognize and give thanks for the gifts of God. We tend to forget that we owe our preservation and the blessings of our life to God. So let us pray. Let us ask God to help us remember, to help us recognize these gifts for what they are, so that we too, with Joseph, with Augustine, with Thomas Akempis, with Absalom Jones, may worthily offer him our thanks.